I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Welcome back to Soul Sisters. I'm your host, Jesse Katz. And I know that you guys don't want to wait for this intro to be over. You want to hear us talk to Paula Cole. So I will let you do that in one second because this is an awesome episode with a kick-ass lady. Just want to mention, I uh, would love to make sure that you guys are subscribed to the Soul Sisters podcast on iTunes. If you found this some other way, please head on over there and look us up and click subscribe so you don't miss any past or future episodes. Uh, if you enjoy this one, you will enjoy a lot of recent episodes we've been cranking out with some other really kick-ass ladies, uh, including some other women that Paula played with at Lilith Fair. This is the 20th anniversary of Lilith Fair, which we got into with Paula. And uh, we have a lot of her sisters already uh, banked up in our episode, so go check those out. Um, and uh, yeah, keep following us on iTunes. We're on Instagram, uh, Soul Sisters Podcast. Check that out. Take a lot of goofy pictures with our guests, which I think you guys will enjoy. Um, and don't forget that Soul Sisters is also now on YouTube. You can watch a lot of our episodes there on Billboard's YouTube channel. Uh, you can actually just watch us chatting in the studio with these awesome women. So go check us out everywhere that we exist. We are waiting for you to find us. All right. Without further ado, here is Paula Cole on Soul Sisters. Paula Cole, what's going on? Hi. <laughs> Hi. How are you? I'm great. Good. It's great to be in the city. Great to be here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's right. You don't live in the city. Not anymore. Yeah. When did a, you a live in the city? A good chunk of my life I did, like, a lot through the 90s. Yeah. And my daughter went to preschool and kindergarten here. Oh, did she? Okay. Yeah. So you have good memories of that time. Oh, yeah. It, the majority of my adulthood was here. Yeah. Where were you living? Were you in Manhattan? Mostly Lower West, so Chelsea and West Village. Nice. So I feel like a displaced New Yorker. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you were part of the 90s scene. I was like, in my 20s in the 90s in New York City. Yeah. It was explosive. It was wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Did you do, like, the bitter end and yeah. all the clubs? Yeah, the bottom scene. line, bitter end. I mean, uh, gosh, I don't know. Chenet, Cafe Chenet was a big one for me. Um, that was in the East Village. That's where Jeff Buckley played a lot, and mm -hmm. that's where I played a lot and got signed on St. Mark's Place between 1st and A. Whoa. Yeah. Such a time, man. Yeah. You know? Uh, I, I went to a taping of a, another radio show last night, and Janine Garofalo and Lily Taylor were the guests on it, mm -hmm. and they were talking about the 90s a lot, and they were remembering the 90s as, like, a very innocent time looking back on it, which is funny because I don't 
think of it that way or remember it that way. Like, I feel like we were still dealing with a lot of shit that we're dealing with now. It's so but... nice you're saying shit. That's okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, we can say, yeah, go for <laughs> it. Let it fly. <laughs> um, but, like, do you have nostalgia for that decade? I mean, because you were in your 20s, so I'm sure you have feelings of, like, oh, it was fun and I, like, did a lot of cool things back then. But, try, like, as a sweeter time, you know? I try not to wallow, yeah. you know? <laughs> right. And get mired in nostalgia. Uh, it was wonderful, though. I mean, it was the first time someone youngish was president with Clinton at that time. Mm-hmm. It was just definitely more democratic, and that felt like growth. There was huge growth in the economy. Yeah. Um, as a recording artist, I visited a lot of the country. I was... Uh, visiting mom-and-pop independent radio stations all around America when they still existed before yeah. they were so monopolized by, you know, one or two um, stations that they own thousands of stations across America. If you think about it, there's like a mix station in every major city. There's a KISS station in every major mm-hmm. city. So uh, before that telecommunications mm-hmm. act happened, happened um, it was just, it was creative. And yeah. the Internet, all that was building... So, yeah, it was wonderful. The music scene was wonderful. Yeah. There was hope in the air. Yeah. Okay, so creatively, maybe it was a more innocent time, especially. Um, Just felt more hopeful. I, I guess so. Than right now. Than today. Right now. You're yeah. talking to me today. Do you mean innocence? Like, what sense of innocence? Like, I guess. Um, I mean, I think they were talking about it in the sense of what was happening in the world. Like, yeah. I, I mean. You know? Which I know. I'm yeah. I'm very depressed by today and yeah. I don't yeah. want to get mired down by that either. <laughs> no, let's not get mired. <laughs> I know. And today's a dark day in history. Like you know, they just the Senate just voted to repeal the uh, Affordable Care Act. So mm-hmm. that's like so heavy on my heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just up in the Bronx, I was just seeing so many people struggling and it's yeah. so hard to know what the outcome of all this will be and it's so confusing. But Right. Um, and like we have to stay bright. We have to keep our souls bright and and hopeful and help people because mm-hmm. we are in a position to help people. We are in a position to be voice. So I can't get too down by that, even though I'm incredibly sad and angry today. Mm-hmm. So today you're asking me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, today you're asking me of all days. But um, you know, there w- there's always tragedy and difficulty in every generation right Mm -hmm. i mean if you would ask boomers about the late 60s they thought that was really really horrible and hard but (laughs) look at the music so yeah we just have our share of today's stuff but i guess you're right in the sense that in the specific like 90s music sort of culture scene there was a pocket of time where it felt pretty chill a little like relative to, to yeah but i still felt like there was so much turmoil i mean you know, I was not terribly old in the 90s, but I remember there being a war and I remember there being mm-hmm. like a lot of political scandal and things still felt very tumultuous. Right. You know, I mean, it's still we're in a special time that is hard to compare in American history. Right. I'm not saying that we're not. Yeah. yeah. There always is. Right. There's always hardship. I guess one thing that's extraordinarily different is like we're all on phones. We're all uh-huh. media connected that way instantaneously. And right. also like half of. Um, the population of species have are gone. Mm-hmm. So, but in my lifetime, like I'm really aware of that of animals mm-hmm. all the, around the planet. And there's a lot of endangered species on the brink, and probably in my daughter's adulthood, they won't be there anymore. So that's crazy. Yeah, that, that that I real really feel for. Yeah, 
So I don't know. Like sometimes yeah. I feel like I need to be Saint Francis of Assisi and drop it all. <laughs> drop it. All. I mean, I'm doing and drop music and like because does this type of fe- these emotions and these thoughts come out in music, yeah. or do you say music's not the vehicle to work with these? I'm so ideas. torn. Like I could get really heavy on Twitter, and really? I don't. Uh, and I'm restraining myself with that fine line, mm. right? Mm-hmm. We all do. How how much do you say? Because do, because it feels futile, or because it's makes you feel worse, or why why do you because I think yourself pe- back? some people will stop listening, and it has to be about love, right. you know, it has to be about light, in order to reach more hearts and open more minds. So it's so hard not to preach to the choir. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's really hard. But I will say, we were talking a little bit before we started this that we saw you do a show recently where you sang Joni Mitchell and John Lennon songs, and I remember thinking about that night that. First of all, Joni Mitchell songs are just so beautiful that will always bring joy and beauty to people's lives, which is always important, especially in a time like now. And John Lennon songs feel very timely, again, in a way that they haven't in a while because things feel so tenuous and scary right now. I know it. You know? So I would hope that that would bolster you when you have moments of feeling like, should I keep doing this or is there any point to it to just focus on that? I I go in the music and right. <laughs> like you're talking about that show I did and uh-huh. I had to learn these songs so well to, mm-hmm. to replicate them, to play them. So I'm inside John Lennon's head learning his chords. His mm-hmm. chords are so beautiful. Oh, I have such a, an appreciation for his harmony, his harmonic sense. His chords are so beautiful. Yeah. And Joni, I mean, so complicated. There'll be a bar of five and a bar of four, you know, and then a bar of two, and it's really lyrically dense. Her songs are difficult mm-hmm. and open all these strange tunings for the guitar player to learn. But I got inside their heads, and it was it, it helped me. It yeah. totally mm-hmm. helped me. And absolutely, John Lennon's songs are really timely, really needed right now. Yeah. yeah. What is your relationship with Joni Mitchell's music like throughout the course of your life? Because I have to say, to even attempt Joni Mitchell, you have to know that you can do it. Like, if you only meet that halfway, it's not going to come out well. (laughs) Those are not easy. I mean, your band alone, for your band to play and your guitarist to play it that well was like, wow, because that's not easy music. And And you want to bring your own flavor to it, which you did beautifully, but still honor that same sound that we all have in our heads and sort of strike that balance. Yeah, and for you to sing it as you in your own beautiful way, but where you're not going like, oh, like, but Joni's really good because that's the challenge, doing Doing all of the hits, doing all of, like, one after the other is just, like, the crowd-pleaser hits, and for it to be just winner after winner, it was really, like extraordinary to see and yeah yeah so so you nailed it so I'm wondering like have you always listened to that music is it in your DNA so it just kind of like poured out of you I'm sure that you also worked a lot to prepare the show but I practiced I had to learn the song (laughs) (laughs) and there are certain songs that are deceptively simple like um John Lennon's song that's called love Uh love is real real is love you know and it's got this really simple little classical piano part Mm -hmm. and it just Needed to be played just the way he he played it, so I had to I had to shed, as they say. Yeah. I, had to, <laughs> I had to practice it. And um, do you enjoy that process? I did. I did. It was kind of um, you know hermetic, uh-huh. yeah. but it expands me as a writer and as a yeah. musician. So yeah, I loved it. Um, and definitely, music is in my DNA. I mean, my my dad was a professional musician. Mm-hmm. 
So it's it's there. I came to the Beatles late okay. because I lived in this little tiny town on the tip of an island in, in northern Massachusetts, and the FM signal didn't even, so this is way pre-internet, right? The, the FM signal didn't even get in properly, so I just, there, I couldn't listen to the radio very well. So a lot of music was made in the house by my dad. Oh, and, wow. And they I, didn't have any Beatles records lying around We the didn't have any Beatles records. Did I you have wow. records? We had records. <laughs> Actually, my dad was on records, so I could oh, wow. pull out his vinyl. And they had a couple of things. They had some Simon and Garfunkel, some Paul Simon. Uh-huh. They had Dolly Parton and Johnny Cash. They had Americana things. Nice. Um, but I didn't start listening to the Beatles till college. Okay. I arrived really late. So, but wow. Wow. Yeah. I wish I had arrived late. I feel like I overdid it on the Beatles in my early yeah. childhood. Yeah, because my That's parents were, like really pushed it on me. And then I had a long break where I was like, I can't anymore. I can't hear them. Mm-hmm. And now I'm coming back to them. Right. But I really I don't think there's any wrong it. time. I hear no, that yeah. some kids, when they listen to the Beatles, when they grow up, they say, I thought the Beatles were writing to for me as a kid, like yeah. Buffalo Bill. Oh, sure. and, you know, Yellow Submarine. That's right. Rocky <laughs> yeah. Raccoon. And yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, they sound like kids songs. Totally. That guitar player at your show. We were starting yeah, to say yeah, that yeah. outside. Right, right. I mean, I know that you, you're a teacher now at Berkeley, your alma mater. Is that right? That's right. And so we were wondering, or maybe you said it. I can't remember if you said it or we were just guessing at the show. Because he looked we so young. Guessing. If he was a student, or if, or if you, you ever take your students on the road, and like, just how like, rewarding that drummer, might be. I think we had the same question. Yeah, they were so yes. young. If they were students of yours. They are recent students, so they're yeah, grads. Okay. They're in their mid twenties. Okay. And Noe Soha, he's a guitar player from Italy, uh-huh. and he's blind, and he's amazing. amazing. He's amazing, and I actually first heard him playing at Berkeley um, on Joni Mitchell songs. Oh, really? Right, and that's how we connected. Uh, we were both playing with this amazing drummer her name's terry lynn carrington and she's won several grammys she's a beautiful jazz player uh-huh. we met with with terry lynn and um i asked him he he plays with me periodically and he's so fast like if there were a hum in the room he could tell you oh that's an a flat he has perfect pitch you know uh-huh. um so i work with him periodically he can play anything and my drummer max also is a recent grad and i do enjoy millennials when they're when the, like there's a few artists that come through and it's just wonderful to connect and age doesn't matter we love the music and and we bond and we make music together so i guess we're just on the path together of <laughs> music right yeah that's beautiful it must be a nice way to not necessarily have to work on anything specific or be going towards a, a like a goal all the time but you're immersed in music you're teaching you're with younger people and sort of like the energy there. I went to the five-week performance there. Did um, you? Yeah, and then I subsequently went to the New School for Jazz, um, which is a very different... I think at the time, at least, you know, it was like 10 years ago, the New School was very, um, you know, concerned about jazz being the focus. And it was the New School for Jazz and contemporary music, but it was really focused on jazz. And I know that Berkeley had a much more wide-ranging... You know, you could explore more, and the different genres are more prominent. And I imagine now it's even more so, and that like computer music is more mm-hmm. kind of an option, and things like that. Um, and so I'm just curious, it must like it, your different emotions coming back to that school and teaching there when it's probably just a different animal at this point. It's such, it's like the Death Star; it keeps absorbing planets. <laughs> like it just absorbed um, Boston Conservatory, so now they offer. 
Boco at Berkeley, and you can take dance and theater, and it, it's enormous and amazing. Um, and actually, there's an I I'm, I've met a, another artist, Denny. She sings with me periodically. She's in her early twenties too. She was my student. It's wonderful to meet talent and see them go off and be artists. And that's what I hope for them is that they think like an artist and start being an artist. Uh-huh. There's everything there, though. Yeah. I mean, do you find it hard harder to give advice and in terms of the music business because it's so hard, <laughs> impossible, brutal, and, <laughs> brutal and tricky and to... vastly different. Vastly different. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, do you have a perspective on it when students come to you and say, like, you know, what should I do or... You know, di- just direction in general oh, yeah. in this kind of way. Yeah, there really isn't enough of me to go around when mm-hmm. I'm there, and then I go and I do concerts and I fly around the place and then I come back in and I teach and I'm very I feel very needed and that's wonderful. Um, and you don't want to kill dreams. You never ever want to do that. You want to nurture and give people guidance. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important that they write. I think it's important that singers write and own their intellectual property mm-hmm. and also just explore the depth of their psyche and put it out there, kind of write out their life. That's that's the style I'm in. That's the vein I love, like Joni and like John. They both wrote out their life. They were autobiographical writers. That's what I love. Mm-hmm. So you were a jazz student, and then many of us discovered you as a pop star. I know. And now we're rediscovering oh, you. Oh, the lament on your face. <laughs> You can see my face like pop star. Oh, I didn't know. <laughs> I was just, pop star is is the, also the cue. Both star. words are key words, but yes. Yeah. Um, and but it seems like jazz is a through line, and now yeah. it's like really Damn. becoming prominent again. Yeah, and you have this beautiful new album where you're exploring it, and so I guess I probably can guess the answer to this. But why did it go from jazz to pop? to then back to what you love the most? That's a great question. And I think there's two main things. Yeah. Um, one was that I didn't want to sing the realities written by Rodgers and Hammerstein or Rodgers and Hart anymore, especially as a woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can really celebrate that on your podcast. Yeah, exactly. Because they were written by, you know, a couple of guys in the yeah. 1940s or 50s. And some of the lyrics are just so antiquated, and I always, I always struggled. Like, oh, here comes this horrible bridge, <laughs> right. or you know, here's this song, "He Beats Me," or right. now man is born to go a loving, a woman's born to weep and fret, to stay at home and tend her oven, and drown her past regrets in coffee and cigarettes. You know these kinds of things. No irony there. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. No, yeah, right. Yeah. No. Or, you know, I enjoy being a girl. Do you know that one? Yeah. Holy shit. I had to drum sing. song? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Rodgers and Hammerstein and I had to sing that song. You know, and every night I wanted to vomit and I sang it and it was, you know, cutesy. Yeah. When I hear the complimentary whistle. <laughs> it's hysterical. Yeah. That greets my bikini by the sea. I turn and I glower and I bristle. But I'm happy to know the whistle's meant for me. <laughs> You know, so silly, right? It's like, what the fuck? Yeah. I, I need to write well, my own realities, clearly. You get <laughs> to a certain age where you realize it's good. It does not, the, the, the melody's nice. Uh, right, right, right. <laughs> and it's yeah. fun. It's an amazing piece of music for that musical, but like, right. okay, what are my options here? So there's that. 
And then um, I was going through a lot of inner turbulence, and I needed to write. It just was like therapy. Um, I guess, um, and I had another reason, but that the lyrics, <laughs> the truth and the therapy of it. Um, well, did it just happen when the, the songs you were writing, were they just sort of more poppy, and then when it developed it sort of like took it on that it was form? A, it was a hybrid and actually a, um, a record company was a senior and in college they were jazz label they wanted to sign me and I didn't take the deal people thought I was insane because I was rejecting a, a record deal when I was still in college but um but I didn't want to be pigeonholed I remember the other uh, reason <laughs> sorry <laughs> is that I was so mean to myself in my own head and I wanted to improvise uh, what they call scatzing, which I hate that term. Uh, it's also loaded. Scat, in, in like a biological sense, means feces. Right. Right. <laughs> and it's like, but is that related to the word scat in jazz? Yeah. It is, sounds like fucking feces. Shooby dooby, scooby doo, you know, that kind of crap. <laughs> so, but I, I love Chet Baker and I love Ella Fitzgerald. Yeah. And what. <laughs> What was coming out of me, I thought, did sound like scat, right? <laughs> and <laughs> okay. and I was so disappointed jam. in myself. So you can improvise, oh, you can vocally improvise, right? Which is I scat, wanted to, yes. But you didn't want, you weren't comfortable with that idea, or I, it's just that my bar was so high <laughs> that it was impossible it, to attain. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I, I didn't think you sounded good I, enough. I, yeah, I didn't think I sounded it's good enough. It's very hard to sound. So good I left it. <laughs> And and it's taken me fifty years, to yeah. you know, of life to realize. Well, I'm not Chet Baker. Of course, I'm not Chet Baker, and I'm not Ella Fitzgerald. Uh -huh. I'm me, and there I'm uh, with all my foibles and strengths, and I'll sing it like I sing it, and I'm entitled to to that voice, and and I've certainly sung on a whole bunch of other people's jazz albums and soundtracks. Yeah. So it's time. It was time to finally make my own. Okay. So, but you're saying that the pop was naturally coming out of you at a certain point. Yeah. That wasn't oh, because someone was pressuring you, like, no. can you try this sound? Because we could sell this sound. No, in fact, it was the opposite. Okay. I was declining a jazz deal because I needed so to write my own twist. stuff. Yeah. And it didn't come out jazz. I thought it was more pop. Yeah. Were you writing with someone or did that just happen naturally through your own writing? I, that was my own writing. That was me in my bedroom. Yeah. And um, like a therapy process, you know, writing about my feelings. <laughs> so that would have been Harbinger, your first record? Some of that, yeah. Watch the Woman's Hands was one of the first songs I wrote. I was in college. I, I was uh, working with a crappy four-track recorder, and I didn't have drums, so I just clapped. <laughs> which became the backbone, and then I was, made that melody, Watch the Woman's Hands. Uh. Would you layer it with your with your recorder? Yeah, oh, it's like pre garage band yeah. making your own. <laughs> yeah, demos. it was yeah, it's like in my bedroom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, what do you think it was about? I, I'm so fascinated by like those two first records and how mm. this fire was the one that caught on and got you that best new artist Grammy. But was your second album? Was that I just know. like? Do you think your your sound had evolved that much between the two, or it was just one of those fluky things where people just all of a sudden paid attention? I guess there was an upward rise, yeah, and uh, blips along the way. Sometimes something great would happen, then something bad would happen. Like. Uh. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Harbinger came out. And then the record company went bust, and you couldn't find it anywhere. And while I was out on tour with... I was opening for Melissa Etheridge on her Yes, I Am tour. You couldn't get a better gig. Wow. Right? That was the pinnacle of her, t- of her career. And I'm yeah. the opener for like a month. And my record company goes bust and you can't find it anywhere. So that took away the momentum. Mm-hmm. We were poised for a second single. It didn't happen. Uh-huh. Um, but I ended up on Warner Brothers. And I think there was still a bubbling under of some zeitgeist. And then this fire came out. I just see them as snapshots, you know, of where I was at. And this fire was just more explosive. It was me rebelling against being the good girl I was trying hard to be for so much of my life, the straight-A student I sing about in, you know, in that song, Bethlehem on Harbinger. Harbinger is, I'm pretty turbulent with my feelings. It's highly produced. I self-produced on this fire. It was much more raw. I'm like primal screaming on it. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm just ripping away the image of the good girl that was confining me. It was like a a snakeskin I needed to shed and get rid of and kind of scream out of. I had anger. I had anger. All women have anger. We don't get to express it constructively. Mm -hmm. And in music, I can express it, and it doesn't hurt anybody and actually helps a lot of people. (laughs) Because <laughs> yeah, we, we can let it out there. Exactly. When you look back on that time do, uh, producing that record, are you amazed at how much you were able to do on your own, uh, how much the label allowed you to do, and that you were <coughs> produced it on your own? You had never produced, you know, a record, a studio album before. I mean, and then you won the Grammy for Best Producer for that record. That I was right? nominated. Nominated. First woman ever nominated for producing her own record. And... Uh, and you were on Roner Brothers, this big record that, record label that you'd think would give you a lot of, you know, uh, just boundaries. Um, so was that, what was the time like that you were making it? Like, what, what, how were they treating you? How did you feel? Yeah, what a great question. And it was all about individuals. They were all men, of course. They were all men. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you'd feel like, oh, this is a patriarchal dinosaur. <laughs> Like, you know, I have to be, I have to, like, channel all my Zen energy right here. I'm going to be so loving. I'm going to be so full of light, and I am going to fucking convert this moment, you know? (laughs) like me in every meeting I ever have. And and then there'd be someone who got it, some wonderful human being who happened to be male, was supporting me, 
And so slowly, slowly gathering allies and just working really hard. I was so under budget. I was really a dark horse. It was difficult. And I had to come in really under budget and deliver that. But I, I learned a lot from my first album. I learned a lot from uh, kind of producing a lot of my own demos anyway. So I mean, you were a musician. Like, you went to school for it. You really studied the music, so you were able to say, you know what you want, be confident in that. I imagine that's key, is to say, like, I know what I want this to sound like, and I can express it, execute it, right? all of those things. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm probably lacking on the high end of engineering vocabulary, but I've got enough. And there, the, the amazing thing is there are so many producers that don't have that anyway. Right. What is a yeah, producer? You know, it's so many things. But I was, I was absolutely ready, and I've been doing it ever since. It's just natural for me. That's yeah. something that I think women often do to ourselves is question our qualifications in that mm -hmm. way, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, well, I haven't, like, really earned it or done it for long enough or, like, know all the little things. And then if you really think about it, mm -hmm. most people don't. And that's how you learn is you just do it. That's right. So if you just empower yourself. That's right. Then you'll get all those things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, can we talk about the 20th anniversary of Lilith Fair for a second? Oh, yeah, because of course. Whatever you want. This is basically the Lilith Fair podcast at this point. From the original lineup, we've had... Like, Suzanne Vega. Five. Oh, fabulous. Lisa, got, yeah. Uh, um, and you guys have been amazing. I've been seeing a lot of oral histories that you have participated in this past year, which is amazing because it's, like, so fun to read those. Um but I saw, I think it was an interview they were doing with Sarah McLaughlin about it, and sh and they were asking her about bringing it back. And she said people are always clamoring for it, especially now, because they think because of Trump and the Women's March that it would be an especially good time to do it. But she was saying that we don't need another Lilith Fair. We, like, it should be its own thing. New artists should do it. That it doesn't need to be a new iteration of the old thing, which I thought was so interesting. And mm. I wondered how you felt about that. That's an interesting question. I don't know how <laughs> I feel about it. Yeah. I mean, um, I would imagine it would be a lot of fun for you to get back together with a lot of those women that were also friends of yours, yeah. from what I understand. Yeah, and still are. And yeah. Still well, it's interesting if it would be the lineup from then with added stars from like yeah. you know the youngest. I think that would be the dream the, yeah that would be the total dream I mean when I was <laughs> researching this and remember so we were you know teens during Lilith Fair uh -huh. and just looking back at it now I just I just am tempted to like read the names because it's so unbelievable it's that nuts. all of you guys were of this time and in one place performing that yeah. I can't imagine that really working today in the same way because of the uh, I guess the different um sounds and appeals yeah that are well and so, also there's like, still the notion which you guys were talking about and everything i was reading was true back then which is that you can't have more than one woman headlining <laughs> you know at the same time oh yeah oh yeah like you, which is still, still true today which is yeah still yeah. true we my i was in a band we changed our name to sound less so that so that a, a booker wouldn't necessarily know right away that we were female right yes yeah. i mean it's, <laughs> it's, it's it's still not 20 years later that's st still a very real thing yeah um, but imagine like beyonce and rihanna and britney howard from alabama shakes and you could go on and on mm -hmm. you know rihanna giddens and just keep going and going bring in all colors all styles it could that would be huge be amazing 
old, yeah, young. Yeah, and that is something that could be improved upon from the original one. It's just, like, is more it, women of color. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, although, uh, that's on accusation because I know, like, Sarah's talks about how you put out, she put out ass to oh, yeah. a lot of people, and you kind of, like, took yeah. whoever was down to do it. And, that's right. Yeah. Um, anyway. It was, a, it was an experiment. Yeah, the exactly. first year. And Tracy oh, Chapman was there, too. She was there. Yeah. Lauren Hill was there the second year, I think. And Erica Badu was there. Erica Badu and Missy Elliott. Yeah, like, it's nuts. Uh, yeah. It's just... So, it gives me chills just to think about that lineup. I know. And I was not aware at the time that it was that stellar. I don't think so either. I probably wasn't aware of all those artists at the time anyway. Like, I don't know that all the names meant something to me yet. Um, it was amazing. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, that'd be cool if, you know, if someone did something similar again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying we would like it. Yes, we would love just it. putting it out there to we the would universe. Know, and the world needs yeah. it. There's such an underground energy right now rising. Yeah. And I will say that, I mean, I remember feeling like it had a fringe sensibility to how it was discussed back then, you know? But it was, like, the highest grossing, what was it? Tour- National touring, touring festival, festival of that year, that first year. Just, like, knocked everything right away. Yeah. It was electric. It was fantastic. The yeah. audiences were fantastic. It felt like what Woodstock probably felt like originally was hope. It would were yeah. I don't know. There might have been more women, but it certainly felt half and half to me from the stage. And everybody oh. wanted a better world. I was just going to say, I saw cool pictures of you performing from behind you. Oh, yeah. The piano. And seeing the crowd in front yeah. of you. And it was very mixed gender. Yeah, very yeah. much. Yeah. yeah. A lot of dudes were out there. Totally. Also, just like a huge crowd. Those pictures are very cool. I yeah, like, they're beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I was a d- <laughs> it's That's Mary Sarah. She was a beautiful photographer. Yeah, gorgeous. We're in such a different um, time and sort of level of consciousness for feminism. I feel like in the mid '90s, it was almost like a yeah. like a taboo word. Yeah, it was a loaded word to say feminist, and so it was so very much not considered. Even though it was full of women, only women, it wasn't. You couldn't really talk about it in, in that context of it being like a feminist concert a tour, which it wasn't. It was just women. You have to be like, it's feminist. I know. Right, but it was now, a dirty word. Right, 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 exactly. But but I think so if it ridiculous. were to happen today, there would be so much more pride specifically directed yeah. at the fact of it's happening, as opposed to like, look at all the like, just a just a, di- a different sense. I know, and I love yeah. the millennials for that. They just have busted mm-hmm. open that word. Totally, it's not loaded anymore. It's yeah. just. What's the alternative? A masochist, right. you know? <laughs> yeah, right. You have different feelings about millennials. I feel like you have. A, emotions about it you say the word the way i say the word even though i'm technically a millennial too i but. speak generational <laughs> terms i do like silent generation i see these qualities like my f- parents are silent and i'm an exer mm-hmm. the boomers and their their music and how much it means to me and now i'm with millennials and my daughter's a millennial so but it yeah. almost sounded like you are pleasantly surprised when you have a millennial student who is free of you know, all of the sort of hang-ups that millennials can often be. <laughs> I find, like, we get territorial about our generation. And, we do. You know? We do. Actually, And it's Dara, not like that. It shouldn't be. It should be fluid. Yeah. But I just found out there's a term for our subset of millennials. Oh, what is that? It's zennials. Oh, does that <laughs> imply FYI, we're more zen? I think so. Okay. I think it's because we're, older genera- the we're older on the cusp, path. so, like, we remember the time before social media, and, like, we grew up without oh, cell phones yeah. and without Facebook and all those things, so we're a little bit chiller on that stuff. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> that or works. We, we tell ourselves we are. Yeah. 
But then you'll see us like <laughs> tweeting and Instagramming this podcast. Right, right. <laughs> no. It's a fine line. But yeah. I mean, I guess in that same vein, um, I understand your feelings about, I mean, streaming, it's just all very complicated. And for the, for millennials and younger, you know, that's all that they know. But for mm-hmm. you who came up in the 90s and for 20 years had a career where music was delivered in a certain way and now it's delivered in a different way. I mean, what's your feeling? I mean, it's very real it's for very me hard. because I'm an artist who collects, you know, and lives off of royalty. So that on one hand is like so felt by me or any artist from the Eagles to the Indies. Mm-hmm. Our our income is dramatically reduced by streaming. It's just taken away. It's so weird. And we are all floundering to find our way through a new mu- music landscape. Um, and we have to be smart and entrepreneurial and have many skill sets to navigate this. We have to sell tickets. We need to reach out. It, so I feel many things about it. On the other hand, I I use Spotify. It's an amazing teaching and listening tool. So it's it's all things. Right. Right. So what's the deal with I don't want to wait in Dawson's Creek on streaming? Dara mentioned this to me. So yeah, what? I read that on now that Dawson's Creek which, I mean, huge oh, fan. like Netflix or something? You, you, you can feel the emotion. <laughs> the, the, uh, the connectedness I feel with I Don't Want to Wait and Dawson's Creek is very real, and I think I speak for a, a lot of my generation when I say that. And then I read that on Netflix, um, it, it couldn't be used as a theme song because of just rights. And, I mean, I guess that's a normal... They didn't even ask me, so I don't know what they're going on about. Huh. Really? They just wanted to... Because I think the other music that they're using, they don't have to pay for. Right. Not a single penny. Right. They paid for it outright. Which is throwing us all under the bus. Mm. All, every artist. Mm-hmm. By anyone agreeing for that. You know, so um, there should be a certain level of humanity and rights for all artists that we should all <laughs> band together and protect. But they didn't ask. So it's just happened. And there, yeah, there was like this, there have been outcry and lots of complaints on Twitter, I get it all the time. It's always streaming in, but they does don't it, change it. So. Does it feel nice for you huh. that it was so meaningful? Or yeah, I mean, of yeah, course, so of much course. of your music is that, but when that's connected in such a lasting way, it must be nice. I mean, it was a vehicle to bring it to another audience. The song where it came from for me wasn't for Dawson's Creek. Right, right. It was yeah, actually, for my grandparents. <laughs> you know, I wrote it about my I grandparents. Like, yeah, so and it was a hit on its own. Well before it was used for Dawson's Creek, but that was such a huge hit that it kind of left us, left me in the dust, right? It was known as the Dawson's Creek theme song for better for Paula Cole singing the Dawson's Creek. I mean, I knew, I mean, it was. Everyone knew that it was your song in my world. But that's interesting. That's how it felt for you. Was that here's this song I wrote about my grandparents and now it's about <laughs> these teenagers. I know. I mean, to listen to the lyrics today is shocking to me because I didn't pay that much attention to the lyrics back then. I remember I figured it was like a romantic song because it's a Dawson's Creek song. Right. And then you like actually pay attention to it. You're like, mm, right. wait a minute. This was not written for Dawson's Creek, clearly. And it theme has songs an entirely other life. have taken on a whole new import. Right? Yeah. A whole yeah, yeah, new yeah. level of appreciation and love and acceptance. So, it, yeah, I'm, I'm sad that it's not there. I, I think it's... A much for better the, song. Definitely. Well, <laughs> for the finale, I will just say to give for the finale, 
they sprung for it. So it Wait, is really? there for Did the they? finale. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. okay. I don't yeah. watch it. But... I was about to yell at, at everyone <laughs> listening it, no. <laughs> who's watching it for the first time on Netflix. Get like, to the you finale. guys do not under, you're not emotionally prepared for each episode of that show if you have not heard that song at the I top of the show. I fully agree. Right? Yes. It, mm-hmm. like, gets I... you in the zone. Oh, it's it's just so <laughs> integral. That's why I, I couldn't not That's bring that up. It's wonderful. just... I care more about the song than I do about Dawson's Creek, Absolutely. by the way. It is I like, Dawson's Creek. I would not that actually talk about Dawson's it's Creek really... with this much enthusiasm. Totally. What do I remember from that show? That's what I know. So true. Right. <laughs> Well, thank you. Because yeah. <laughs> I was sad about it, and that makes me feel better. Oh, it's so an everlasting. Yeah, no, it's and the people who the grew up with it, it's yeah. forever. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I, I remember at the City Winery show, I don't remember, I don't know, I couldn't hear what song they were calling out, but someone from the crowd asked you to sing an older song of yours, and you very politely demurred and said you just wanted to stick to what you were performing that night, but it made me wonder how you do feel about playing those older songs oh i'm fine with it yeah. i do it a lot do you okay i do like hits that yeah, i play mo- a lot <laughs> yeah um i give that a lot i've done it a lot okay and i i don't look at it as onerous at all like it's so celebratory like let's go into this party that is this song and let's let's, let's jam this together right and it lifts the roof it's fun i'm great with it but that was a specifically designed concert for you know to celebrate yeah, the music of John right, Lennon right, and Joni right. Mitchell <laughs> <laughs> that, that like person was tonight, trying dear, his luck you know? yeah. <laughs> right totally <clears throat> I wanted to ask about I love the question of like when you write these hits do you ever know that it's a hit that you've written so with either um uh I don't want to wait or where have all the cowboys gone I'm curious when you wrote that song did you feel like oh this is it was it, was it a magical feeling? Oh, I had a funny feeling about Where Have All the Cowboys Gone. I just felt, and that was also the zeitgeist we were talking about, like my career. And I have felt that about other songs that didn't become hits, you know. Yeah. But there are so many moving constellations to a galaxy that is, how is a hit going to happen, right? And where are you in your career? And how's your management and your record label and the song? So... Um, there, yes, there were other songs that I thought, and I, I even said, this is my big hit song. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Not. It's like falling in love with someone. People were like, I just knew when I met them, but like how many times did they really right, totally. think that to themselves? <laughs> right. Probably more than just the one time. Yeah. Yeah. That's and you funny. recently re-recorded it, is that right? Or did you just did. do a new video? Okay, you re-recorded it. a video for Where Have All the Cowboys Gone, yeah. Directed by Melora Hardin. Yeah. Amazing. amazing. So amazing. I didn't know this she was a director. She's a badass oh, director. Awesome. <laughs> You're say something and else. she's my best friend, too. Really? Isn't that I wonderful? I love that. And so, you, I huge fan. Melora and I, I, I found her when I was living in L.A., and we were both pregnant together. And we became friends, and we were massively pregnant. Aww. And we had our babies right around the same time. We both had girls. And we've just been really good friends ever since. And, That's awesome. And then she got the gig as Jan on The Office. Yeah, the and then as Tammy. Mm-hmm. We haven't talked about Transparent, Transparent. Alliance. I know. Gotta come, and now she's Jacqueline on The Bold Type. Oh, yeah. That's cool. right. I heard that's great. It's great. Yeah. She's great. So what was what was that decision to do to do that venture? Re-record, redo a new video. I wanted to own the master for my hit song, and it meant I need to record it. That's a, that's one oh. business thing aside, and I wanted to celebrate. Like here we are at twenty years, it still feels funny, relevant. Like 
there, there's nothing else like that song. Yeah. There never has been. Mm-hmm. And it just I just needed to put it out there again. I love it. That's awesome. All right, so... 20 years after that, you also have a new album coming out. Yeah. Ballads. Thank you. So beautiful. Thank you. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. Um, I I would imagine you have a catalog that is a million times the size of that in your head of songs that you would love to record. So how did you whittle it down to the ones that you went with? I do have like so many (laughs) songs that I love and I've been waiting so long. That frustrated jazz singer. Right, right, right. (laughs) So I was a slave driver, and I made the band. We recorded 31 songs in five days, and they were really good. And I had to whittle it down, and I thought, okay, well, this has to be a double album, which, again, is so counterculture, like in an age of (laughs) singles, right? right. (laughs) I'm just going against the grain. We're going to go. I'm doing vinyl, and it's going to be double vinyl. Nice. Yeah. um, It's out August 11th, and there'll be double vinyl. And it just, the sequencing was really hard. What song flows yeah. great into the next? So there's some gems that were left off, but this was the right body. And I wanted to weave in songs that some might classify as Americana uh-huh. and some might classify as jazz, but mm-hmm. they, I feel like they belong together. They're great American songs from the 30s to the 60s, mm-hmm. primarily. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a nice diversity. It's songs made famous by men and women, like yeah. all different sorts of That's artists. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's gorgeous. And also I'm paying homage to my heroes. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um and you're gonna be touring a bit? Oh it? yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna be working. Crisscrossing the country or what are oh, you doing? Yeah. yeah. A lot. Okay. And That's touring right. doing a f- several shows where you're just doing this fire. Did I read that? I've been doing that, and I probably will do a few more of those, but that's kind of ebbing and tucking into ballads now. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, those are fun. And oh. the catalog is getting deep, so I have to kind of <laughs> yeah. rotate some songs. Oh, fun. Awesome. So August 11th, you said? August 11th. Awesome. For ballads. Great. All right, guys, check it out. It's gorgeous. We previewed it. Um, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Paula, thank you so much. Oh my this gosh, was a joy! I hope you I didn't on. swear too much. I, l- I, I really I let think loose. I swear enough, actually. So you know what's I'm... so funny? Just on one little anecdote. Yeah, please. I was singing. I was singing jazz with Chris Bodie at Madison Square Garden. He was opening Whoa. for Josh Groban, right? So it was all <laughs> weird, right? Very casual. Good and I was in the hallway in the back, and Josh comes over to me. He said, "I saw you perform. You came to." this arts camp that I was at in upstate Michigan. And they booked you because they thought you were so wholesome and then you dropped so many F-bombs. We were so shocked. <laughs> <sure. laughs> that's awesome. Oh, that's like, uh, funny. So that's I th- a great story. And I feel conscious about it. Like, oh, that surprise you to hear about yourself? It's spicy language. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean it with any malintent. Oh, it's just spice. No, I'm sure it sounds beautiful coming out of your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure the kids weren't scarred at all. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, all right, Paula, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Lovely. Thank you.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.